This is Ben Guest, and welcome to Ben Bo's podcast. Today I have a conversation with Peter Olson. Peter is a writer, he's a publisher, and he's an editor. You can find all his work and services at peterolson.com. Peter wrote a great book called The Vig, Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie, and can't recommend that book enough. Encourage you to purchase it from your local bookseller or borrowing that from Amazon. In this conversation, we talk about The Vig, his book, and then we talk about publishing and editing. So I think if you're interested in those aspects of writing, you're going to find this interview useful and helpful. And we end with a discussion of our favorite restaurants and our favorite pizza places in New York City. Enjoy. Okay, let's start with The Vig. So the way I discovered you, I think as you know, is I just published a book about my entry into the sports betting world. And when I checked the sports gambling category on Kindle, our books were kind of neck and neck, I think for like three and four, two and I forget what it is. Yeah, I think, so, I think by the way, you've, you've passed me like <laughs> secretary and in the stretch. Well, who's, who's counting? Um, but, but there's, there's a, there's some horse racing book that's, that neither of us could. That's could true. Do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, I started reading your book, loved it, pinged you and, and you were very gracious to come on and, and, and talk. And I just finished um, your book, The Vig, this morning. Again, I can't recommend it highly enough. Here's what I love about the book. Ostensibly, it's about um, you becoming a, a bookie and entering this new world. Um, Confessions of an Ivy League bookie, which is something not a lot of people have experienced and probably not a lot of people can relate to. But I think what your book is really about is somebody who's um, dealing with the end of a romantic relationship, which is something everybody can relate to. So I just loved that on its surface, it's about this one thing, but then there's this um, deeper story or or separate story that's about something universal. Uh, So I guess my first question is, can you talk about how you how you thought about interlacing those two stories and what that was like in the writing process. Yeah. I mean, it, it seemed very natural um, because as you say, the, the book is, is on the surface about becoming a bookie, but you know, really what, what happened is that I was at this, this very low point in my life and I was sort of just trying to figure out how to, put one foot in front of the other and, and, you know, and, and put myself back together. And, and, um, you know, the fact, the fact that I was back in New York after a couple of years in Chicago and I, and the magazine business was in a tough place. I'd been working as a freelance magazine writer. And so I needed to make money and this opportunity, let's call it an opportunity, just sort of fell into my lap. and. And it seemed like, why not? What the hell? You know, I mean, I'm in a dark place. Let's do something even darker in a way. Um, and and um, what was really great about, about the, especially at, at the beginning, was that the, the bookies 
um, who had an office on the um, in the East Village in this uh, in the the apartment that belonged to uh, an old out of work actor um, who was a character uh, in and of himself, um, and and so there were there were usually uh, half a dozen of us in the living room of his apartment while he was off in what we called his cave, which was his, his dark bedroom. Um, uh, there was, it, it was, it was almost like joining a fraternity, um, because they were really a brotherhood and, and, um, and so there was this hazing process, uh, made worse for me because I had gone to, um, to an Ivy League, uh, college, Harvard, to be specific. And so, you know, to them, it was, it was kind of, uh, hilarious that I was there with them and, and also made me the, the butt of, of many jokes. Um, but over time, I, I really grew to appreciate their, um, aliveness and, and their, and their, and, you know, their, their sort of their rough ways, uh, which weren't that familiar to me. Um, but, but made me feel like suddenly I had, I had a bunch of brothers and, um, and, you know, in the place that I was in emotionally, it was, it was very, um, healing. Um, and also just, you know, learning about this world that I hadn't, uh, known existed. And, you know, there was, there was something about walking through the, the streets of New York and it was revelatory. Suddenly this feeling that, that behind every window, something strange might be going on. Um, that was, you know, that was an eye opener. I, I felt like I'd been incredibly naive in, in my approach to the world. And that there was really, you know, that there were many more things going on than I had ever known. Right, right. Um, what's the, the, there's the Shakespeare line. There's more, there's more in this world, Horatio, than in all your, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the out-of-work actor whose apartment you were using, uh, w- one of the sections in the book that I highlighted, um, you write, I found myself looking at him the only son of a Jewish mom, likely to die alone, having done nothing with his life, and I got the heebies. I realized why everyone in the office had contempt for him. He was their worst nightmare of themselves. I mean, that just made me sit up and, and sharply, and, and like I said, highlight it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was he was an incredibly poignant character, and... Um... And and he really was our our worst nightmare of ourselves, and and yet we weren't that far away, any of us, from being him, and um, and so you know so contempt was really the only way to to treat uh, that person that you didn't want to become, um, because you you needed a barrier to it. So back to the. The, the conception of the book, I totally get the idea of, hey, I'm entering this strange new world. Let me write a book about it. At what point did you decide, let me interlace this story with the ending of my relationship, my romantic relationship with a woman named Anna? 
Yeah. So, th- well, the the funny thing is that for the first um, for the first week or two that I that I started working there, um, I w- I wasn't thinking about writing a book about it. Um, but en route to to the office down St. Mark's, uh, a f- lived a friend of mine, um, character named Legs McNeil, who was uh, uh, actually a, a, a well-known writer now who, who wrote a book about uh, uh, punk called Please Kill Me, um, which has become sort of a, a uh, staple of, of, of that genre. Um, and, and so I would, I would stop in on occasion to say hello to, to legs, either on my way to work or on my way back. And I started telling him stories about it. And, and he said, you got to write about this, you know, like start, start taking notes. And, and, um, so I did. And, you know, even though I had, I, I mean, I was, many months out of this relationship neither uh neither i nor anna and that's of course not her real name could could entirely let go of each other and so as as you know as we began to once again you know flirt around the idea of it not actually being over, um, it, it felt natural to me because I was, I had already started what I would do each day when I got, when I got back from the bookie office is I would start writing things down, writing down what I remembered of the day. And, and as Anna started to infiltrate her way into my consciousness, I began to, to add those, those things that were happening with her too. Conversations we were having, etc., um, and uh, and then of course eventually she she did end up uh, coming to New York for a while with um, uh, results that were <laughs> predictably disastrous. Um, but uh, so so that all it, you know it, I mean it, it it all made sense and it was it was such a you know fundamental part of my life that it would have seemed artificial to not have that be part of, of the book. But, but I also will say that, you know, that at, at the time the book came out, there, there were, um, there were people, mostly guys who were like, you know, why do you have to mess up, uh, you know, a good book by, by writing about, you know, the cringy romance stuff. And, and uh, so <laughs> you can't please everybody. It's funny. I, I I think the cringy romance stuff makes it work. And I'm in, you know, I'm in either way because, like you, I'm sort of venturing into this strange new world of sports betting. Um, but, like I said, very few people have had the experience of being an Ivy League bookie. Virtually everybody on the planet, every adult on the planet, has had the experience of a relationship ending, but you can't quite let go. Yeah. So I, I think it's a wonderful counterpoint. And for the listeners, again, can't recommend the book highly enough. It's called The Vague Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie. And what's one of the many neat things about the book is these two stories, um, Peter and his relationship with Anna and 
um, entering this world of sports betting, they both sort of crescendo in the book um, at the same time. So it's it's just masterful work, masterful structure, masterful writing. Oh, thanks. Um, let's let's talk about arbitrary press. So one of the many cool things that you've done, and so I, I feel a little bit of a kinship with you, Peter, in that you know I think both of us are you know, we've been on one path and, and we, whether we were afraid or not, we've, we've tried out different things. Um, some of which may have worked and some of which may haven't, but it, there, there's nobility in, in the trying. So one of the things that you've done, I don't know if it was during the pandemic or you had it set up before the pandemic, but you've created your own publishing house and you've published several books and you have several more books on the way. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it, w- it was very much something that that you know came out of the pandemic. I, I mean, like like with you, and um, uh, you know, not that I wasn't at at home all the time anyway before the pandemic, but it just it sort of changed uh, it's, it changed my consciousness just in terms of of um, what was possible, and it, it also coincided with the the difficulty of getting this novel that I'd written published. And and so that experience of trying to sell that, um, my agent uh, tried to sell it for close to a year and a half, and it went out to 50 publishers um, and got some incredibly nice rejections. Um, and, but there was a, a theme to them, and um, and and the theme is that <clears throat> that uh, publishing is is not um, very receptive right now to um, white men of a certain age. Uh, sad to say, I mean, and and you know, and and the thing is, you know, frankly, we had it really good for a long time, so. Uh, I guess in you know in the scheme of things, it's it's sort of uh, it's it's fair and and karmically um, right. It's just difficult when you're you know the one who's on the receiving end of it. But um, uh, I did then actually have a deal at at a small publisher, and um, t- twice I had deals with small publishers, and the the first one fell apart because. The the publisher was um, sad to say a psychopath, um, and and I said the wrong thing to him. He was going to publish both the novel and reissue um, uh, the Vig, and on a Friday um, we had a deal for that, and then I said I I said one wrong thing to him. Now, it wasn't actually a wrong thing, but f- from his perspective, it was. And um, I just asked him if something was possible. And apparently, I wasn't supposed to ask him if this thing was, was possible. And so he canceled the deal. Um, and uh, so that was, that was a rough weekend, because I went from having two books that were going to be coming out to, to none. And then I found an, another small uh, indie publisher, and uh, he was going to publish the book, but 
I kept waiting and waiting for the contract and it wasn't coming. And so the editor at that publishing house, I, I called him up and I said, what's, what's going on? Why, you know, why haven't I gotten a contract? And he said, look, he said, truthfully, uh, the publisher is just, he's, he's, he's not very reliable. And, and we have another writer who's been waiting six months to get a contract and still hasn't gotten it. And he just moves at his own pace. And he said, if I were you, I would publish the book yourself. You'll make more money. You'll have a better experience. Just, just go for it. And, but don't tell anyone I told you that. <laughs> so anyway, that was what got me um, thinking about, about publishing it myself. And any times I had thought about doing that uh, bef before that, and it just seems sort of steeped in in a in a kind of defeat um as you know as if it were um i don't know i mean i i guess it's the same way that that pe people used to feel about online dating and no longer do now everyone does it and it's the same with with uh with so-called self-publishing um but I I decided I was I was going to do this, and and my 13 year old daughter had written a novel, and I I decided you know before I publish a book of mine, let me use her as a guinea pig, and uh, <laughs> so so that's what we did. So we published her book. It it was an incredible experience for, for me and for her. Um, and, and I love the result. And, and so, so then I, I decided I was going to, I was going to publish both my novel and reissue my first book. And then I also had several other books that I wanted to publish. And so I did an Indiegogo campaign and, um, raised a fair amount of money and made it possible to to do all of this um, without you know spending money out of pocket, and um, and so far it's been a, it's been a, a, a wonderful experience. I, I I feel like with with my novel, um, I probably have sold as many copies of it as I would have had I gone with an indie publisher, but I have been in control of every phase of the process, including as you, as you, uh, uh, as we discussed earlier, the, the cover of the book, the cover of both books. Um, and, and, um, you know, I got, I got this, uh, cover designer who, uh, is, is one of the lead cover designers at Random House. And she does, uh, uh, she does this, um, she moonlights, you know, doing, doing uh, freelance and I hired her to do the cover and she did an incredible job and um, I'm continuing to use her on, on future books. So what, what I love about all of that is, and, and what I loved about self publishing my own book, my first book is that no one could tell me no. Right. I, it, it's exactly the story I want to tell, the way I want to tell it, released the day I want to release it, not nine months from now. 
and reading about the traditional publishing world, it was like, you have to get an agent who believes in your book, who then sells it to an editor who believes in your book, who then sells it to the publishing house who believe, and you, every step along the way, you got to convince someone who, who says no for a living to say yes. And you've done that not only at the level of a book, as I've done, you said, not only do I want you know, no one to say no to my book. I want to be able to publish the books that I want to publish and use the designer I wanted to use and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I just love that, that, that it's, um, again, getting out of your comfort zone and saying, I'm going to start my own publishing press. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seemed like a very daunting and lonely task at first. And that was, you know, part of my hesitation was just, was just that, that it would, that I would feel very alone in it. But but in fact I, I didn't and the, you know there there's so many support networks out there now um, where you can go to people and learn from from their mistakes and of course I made mistakes of my own um, you know that 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 I have learned from but uh, the learning curve was a lot shorter than it it might have been and um, you know the other thing is because all my previous books. Uh, uh, four books had been uh, with traditional publishers. I'd seen the good and the bad of that. Um, you know, there 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 were some good things that that come as a result of of going with a, a mainstream publisher. But you know, with one of my books, they completely fucked it up, and so I had a list of eighty people who were supposed to get galleys to get some pre-pub buzz going they didn't they didn't get the book they never sent it to them you know so so that was something where it had it had a huge like you had negative, one job yeah you had one job and and that had a huge negative effect on the book and you know if something like that were to happen with a book that i publish there would only be one person to blame and that would be you know, me and, and, you know, and so there's something comforting in knowing that, you know, if, if, if something doesn't happen, you know, you know where to go to point the finger. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I like that aspect of it. Um, you know, on, and I mean, my, my daughter with her book, um, unfortunately she had no desire in promoting the book. And <laughs> so if I end up publishing her next book, that is a, that's a deal breaker. So we, we're going to be straight on that ahead of time. Um, so, and I think yeah, you got to get out. She's, and, changed and her she's changed her attitude, but you know, she didn't well, want adults reading her first book. Let's, let's, let, let, let's give her a little leg up right now. So her name's Eden Olson and her first book is called The Novice Twins. Is that the, right? The Novice Twins, yeah. And it's published by Arbitrary Press. Published by Arbitrary Press, and it's it's a uh, it's fantasy. Um, but her her second book, which she just finished, and um, is she's still editing, uh, is a complete departure. It is reality based. It's um, it takes place in in the aftermath of a um, David Koresh-like cult having burned to the ground and there are survivors 
and it follows the the um, story of one of the survivors of this cult, teenage girl who goes to live with uh, some family that she's never met before, and it's it's fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I say as the proud parent, but it's but I, but I also say as the harsh editor, um, it's a really good book. It sounds great. Does it have a title yet? It's called Saving Grace. Saving Grace by Eden Olson. Yeah. So look for that. And of course, all these books that we're talking about, if you visit um, Peter's website, peterolson.com, and click on the publications tab, you can you can find all of this stuff. Um, I, I do want to talk about editing for a bit, but but actually, let's stay with Arbitrary Press. So you said you made a few mistakes. Of course, anytime we do anything... We make mistakes and we learn from them. So rather than framing it as mistakes, what are some of the lessons you learned from the first books that you published? So some of the lessons I learned, you know, there was, um, and now I'm I'm sort of blanking on the the name of it, but it is a way to get uh, pre-publication reviews. I I guess it's NetGalley. So I spent, I think it was 400 bucks to uh, get my book to NetGalley people who would give pre-publication reviews of it on Amazon. And I think I wound up getting maybe half a dozen reviews. And so it, you know, it, it broke down to like $80 a review, which I wouldn't do that again. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I even talked to, uh, I talked to them about it and they said, oh no, you got a, you know, you've got a good return. You know, you got this many people, the blah, 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 and whatever. Anyway, I learned my lesson with that. So there are things like, you know, there are things like that. Most of it has to do with how you, how you spend money and what the return on that money spent is. Um, and in fact, I was even thinking that I might um, that I might write a short um, a short book, sort of you know the the length of of your book about the experience, um, and and so that I could help people not make some of the mistakes I made. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I was talking with my mom the other day, and I was you know just saying it's weird, like. Each new thing I do can generate a new thing. So I published a book on Amazon Kindle. Now I could write a book about how to publish a book on Amazon. You know, it's like yeah, exactly. the, the snake that eats itself. Um, just keep keep each thing generate something new. Um, okay, so creating a publishing house. What? Um, not what does that entail, but but what? What are all the different things that you do as a publisher? So right now, I mean, I, I do everything, but if someone comes to me with a book that they would like me to publish, I am not going to do the things that a traditional publisher or even most small indie publishers do, which is I'm not only am I not going to pay in advance, but it's it's going to be at best a cooperative effort um, because uh, 
you know, the, the marketplace right now is incredibly competitive. And so it's hard to sell a book and, and make money off of it unless that, unless, you know, there, there might be some books where I would say, oh, this is, this book is a moneymaker, but there's so many books out there. You have to be able to figure out how to get your book, the attention that is going to get it an audience. And that's, that's not easy. And that requires uh, a lot of work and some money. And, and so I'm not supplying that money. If somebody wants to actually hire me to help them so that they, so I can do the things for them that I had to learn and, you know, on the job as it were, um, I'm, I'm open to that. And, and then also I, I do uh, book editing and, and doctoring. And for that, I, I certainly uh, charge money. Um, and, and, uh, because, uh, there, while there are a lot of book editors out there, there aren't a lot of good book editors out there. And, um, so, so I'm not cheap. Um, and, and I've worked on a lot of, uh, I would say over the past, I've been doing this now for, for, uh, three or four years. And, um, I have, uh, shepherded through two publication, uh, over a dozen books. Um, and, and a number of those have been published by traditional publishers. Um, so my track record has been, been pretty, pretty damn good. I mean, almost every book that I've worked on has gotten published. Um, and, uh, and I'm proud of that. And, and I, I also found, you know, I came up as a writer and, and journalist uh, not as an editor, although I worked as a magazine editor at one point, but it's been incredibly satisfying to me to edit books uh, that that I think are worthy and and see them, uh, you know, published. It's it's a, it's a little bit like being a, a midwife. Um, and the thing is, I don't. I also don't take on. Uh, every book project that comes my way, in fact, I take on very few. I, I have to feel an affinity for the material, um, and and uh, and and also feel like I I know how to help it, you know. So so I'm not if I might like a book, but if I can't see a way to to improve it, um, then I'm not going to take it on. And um, yeah. Yeah, I heard something a couple months ago that, that rang true for me, and it sounds like it's probably true for you, which is you need three types of people in your life. You need people you can go to for advice, you need peers, and you need people you can mentor. And what you're doing is, to a certain extent, mentoring. Um, and that's, that's something that's really fulfilling. It is really fulfilling. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's surprised me how fulfilling it's been. Um, and, and, uh, I, you know, I never, um, I mean, you're, you're a teacher. I never aspired to, to being a teacher. I, I, I don't know why that is. Um, but you know, now, now I, I definitely see the, the, the pleasures and satisfactions to be, to be had in that. Okay. Last publishing question. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, I don't want you to give away the store or anything. You talked about one way in which, um, you can spend money that turned out not to be a good return on investment. 
what what is um what is something that authors should spend money on well um cover art definitely um I would say of of all the the things that that I spent money on, cover art was was probably one A, and then one B would be um, an, a good editor. Um, you know those, and and then also um, along with a good editor, you need you need to have a professional copy editor and proofreader, because nothing says self-published as quickly as, you know, typos and, and grammatical mistakes. Uh, so you, you definitely want those things. Um, but, um, yeah, those, those would all be the major expenses. Uh, then as, you know, as far as publicity, there are so many ways to generate. I, I actually consulted with a publicist and there was almost nothing that she told me or or ideas that she had that I didn't have myself. So, you know, if if you have the money and you don't want to spend the time and you also don't want to spend the energy and the creativity, then hire a publicist. But, you know, those that is something you can do yourself. Um, now, you know, I, I will also say that, that I had advantages that some people might not have, which is that I have a lot of uh, connections in, in media and in the publishing world. And so, so I was able to, you know, to, to use those connections to, to get a lot of publicity for the, for the books. Um, and, and some people might not have that. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to say it is it is always uh wasted wasted money but for me it would have been yeah just to second that in my much less um experience cover art and a good editor especially a good copy editor yeah th those are the non-negotiables yeah um okay let's and, talk and about as, and then by, yeah. by the way i mean as you know as you uh, uh, learned i mean you know just the fact that you were able to um, to to reach out to me just because you saw my book next to your book, those kinds of things you can do, and and you know sort of peer to peer um, publicity is also very helpful and and effective, and and yeah. people are you know people are always I, I think most people are open to to you know if they're if you approach them in the right way. They, they are open to, to helping you. That, that is one of the best things about the author community. You know, I've joined a few Facebook groups, and you're maybe the, the fourth or fifth author that I've interviewed for the podcast. And I just reached out cold on Twitter or email. And, and just to reiterate what you said, more often than not, people are more than happy to talk, to share ideas, you know, not necessarily to read your manuscript or anything like that, but, but, um, you know, when I was a younger coach in my twenties, I was so competitive, right. That it's like, you don't want to share things with other coaches. And, and as I was, a, I left coaching and came back to it in my forties, 
it was like, hey, it's all let's share everything, right? Yeah. It's, you know, and and you even mentioned, I can't remember if it was in the book or in an interview that I read of yours, how you know you you were competitive uh, as an author when you were younger, and I just think part of maturing as a person, um, again, there's room for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, I mean, you know, the other an- analogy, because um, in, in the poker world, when, when I was coming up, no one liked sharing information. And now everyone shares information. And so as, you know, as a result of that, everyone has gotten better. Um, and, and, but that doesn't mean that they're not still competitive with each other. But but they share information because they they figure that it comes back and you know and and so if they share something with you you'll share something with them and together you you know you you all get better. Yeah, yeah, and, and also at the end of the day, whatever it is, whatever the niche is, whether it's coaching basketball or sports betting or poker or writing, like we love this shit, you know, and it's fun to talk about it. Not, not only is it helping each of us get better, it's just, it's, it's enjoyable to talk about it with someone else who's going through the same thing. It, it really is. It really is. Um, let's, so let's talk editing. Uh, I've had a couple of interviews on this podcast where we've talked about different writing processes, but we haven't talked too much about editing. Um, so when you, so you offer your services as an editor, and as you just mentioned, you've, you shepherded a, a number of books, including some that have become bestsellers. Yeah. Um, what walk us through what that process is like from from the start yeah so i mean the first thing when someone sends me a manuscript uh usually i'll i'll tell them that i'll read you know the first uh 40 or 50 pages of it uh gratis you know just just to see if it's something that makes uh sense for me to work on um and and you know i mean i can usually tell in in ten pages, whether whether something is is going is appealing enough to me to want to work on it, and whether I I'll read fifty pages to see if I feel like there are things um, that I that I can see um, that that will uh, improve the book, um, and so at at that point I'll say you know I think I think we can work together on this. And, um, and then what I'll do, um, for, for most books, um, I'll do a big picture edit, which is to read the book a couple of times and talk about structural issues and thematic issues and, and, and ways that I think the book, uh, big notes on the book that need to be addressed to make the book better. Um, and so, so I'll do the, so if, if they're amenable, then we'll move forward and, and I'll do that and I'll write up a report. And sometimes those reports are 20 pages long. Um, and you know, they're, they're quite detailed and they go into a lot of s- specifics, but the next step beyond that, would be a line edit. And in a line edit, I am actually leaning on every sentence in the book 
and it's quite time consuming. And I, you know, brandish a red pencil and go through it sort of ruthlessly. Um, you know, I, most, most writers use too much. I mean, there, there are too many words. So, so I'm almost always cutting. Um, and, and, um, and it's, you know, it's just, it's a process and, and truthfully, you know, to, to do the ideal line editing job, it's impossible to do it a once through. You almost have to do do it twice, um, but I, I, I rarely do that just because it's it's so time consuming and and would be so expensive, uh, and you know and that can get quite quite pricey. Um, uh, I I tend to uh, charge. Um, I, I have an hourly fee. Um, and I'll give an estimate based on that hourly fee, and I'm almost always underestimating. So I'm almost always working for a lower hourly fee than I actually have. <laughs> um, but that's you know that's just the way of it. And, and I'm I'm incredibly uh, diligent, and and you know I I I just once I'm once I'm working on a thing, I can't stop myself from from really, you know, just, just bringing, bringing it. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for the listeners who, who aren't in the writing world, a line edit is about sentence construction, yeah. sentence flow, etc. So that, that is, um, like you said, you're, you're deep in the weeds there. Yeah. How do you approach line editing? How do you approach sentence construction? So, so the main thing is, you know, and I'm very, very respectful of writer's voice. So, so what I want is to not show my fingerprints. Um, and, and so I, I want it to, I want to, I want to help their, their sentence construction, but at the same time, make it not seem as if I have done, done anything. And, and I think that, you know, most of the writers I, that I, that I work with are, are really open to that. And occasionally I will go too far and they'll say, that doesn't sound like me. And, and, you know, at that point I, I will always say, absolutely, you know, don't, don't incorporate something that you feel doesn't sound like you, you know, to be true to, the writer's voice is is of the utmost importance, and you know, I I mean, I know, you know, I have the advantage of having gone through it on on the other side, and so so I know what a good editor is like from from a writer's standpoint, and that's what I aspire to, you know, and and I've had editors who've had really heavy hands, and who have done, you know, who have changed made word changes that I would never using a word I would never use. Um, you know, it's kind of appalling. So, so that's my, you know, my, my, my objective is not to do that. Um, and to be really respectful of, of a writer's voice. Yeah. And going back to you starting your own press, um, or, or me self publishing, it's the idea of, um, I love getting feedback 
when I have the final say. Yeah. When you don't have the final say, it sucks. And you mentioned, I think, in your interview with on Brian Brian Koppelman's podcast, that you didn't want to call the book Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie. You wanted to call it The Vig, which is when you re-released it in your own press. That's what you titled it. But somebody else, they didn't necessarily have final say, but you have to pick and choose, is this the ditch I want to die in? Yeah, exactly. and, and doing your own press, no one can tell you no. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the, the thing is that, you know, that, that editor who wanted to title the book Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie, they, they were probably right from a commercial standpoint. Um, but that doesn't mean that they were that they were right for the book. And um, so it was, you know, it was, right. it was a great thing for me to be able to finally call it, you know, what I what I wanted to call it. And by the way, my wife said, what are you doing? Don't change the title, you know. But I was like, you know, you know, I, I, I have to say, Peter, it, it is a catchy fucking title. You know, yeah. it's a catchy. But but again, it's that, you know, it's funny to talk about. But even in the, the construction of the title, art versus commerce, yeah. art versus commerce. Always. That's always yeah. been art versus commerce has been the, the you know, the, the ongoing question of of my life and um it's 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 always a battle yeah it um you know in, in another life i used to make documentary films and, and i just oh, is that right? self, oh, wow. yeah yeah uh and i self-financed them and so i loved getting feedback because it was like what you want and i and you 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 reference this when you're talking about line editing i think what you want as an artist is to just be aware you know, so are, are you aware that you're making this choice? Are you good with it? Okay, fine. And sometimes we're not aware. And that's when we need feedback. And that's when we need a good editor, or good audience or what have you. But it's again, I would have hated making those same documentaries, if somebody else could pull rank on me and say, No, you have to use this font for the titles, or you have to have this scene in there. So it, it, it's, being in control just allows you to get feedback in a much more helpful way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said when you get the manuscript, you read it a couple of times. How much time do you wait in between each read? Well, so the first time I read it, I really just want to, I just want to be reading it as, as a reader. I don't want to be thinking too critically. Um, so, uh, I, I don't really need to wait that long in between reads. I mean, I'll, I'll think about it after I've read it as a reader, and then I'll go back at it as an as an editor. And and you know, and I'll since I already have, I already know the structure of it. I have that in mind, and I don't have to be thinking about those things. They're they're just there, and I can start to to approach it critically. And knowing where where it's going to go, um, and and uh, and I you know and, and at that point I'll I'll be taking notes, um, and and um, and and that that second read usually goes much more slowly than than the first read. The first read is really just to to read it in one you know in one gulp and get through it. When you for your own writing. 
when you finish a, a draft, how long do you let it sit in the drawer before you pick it up again? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, it 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 depends. It's never long enough. Um, I I I don't think you can wait long enough. Um, and I I mean I'll usually try and let something sit at least for a few days, maybe a few weeks. I mean, if it's, if it's a novel, I think, you know, if it's a book length thing, it's usually good to let it sit for, for a couple of weeks. Um, that's not always possible, but, but ideally you, you'd like to do that. Um, and, and then, you know, you, it, it's sort of never too late to, to walk away from a thing. Um, so, so I can work on something that I'm editing and feel like I'm too close to it and say, you know what, I need to, to put this away for a while and go work on something else. In fact, I'm working on a, on a short story right now uh, that's going to be part of this collection. And it's a story that I wrote probably 20 years ago. Um, and so I, when I came back to it, I was completely fresh. Um, I had even forgotten that I'd written this story. And, um, and now I'm at a point on it. I've been working on it for, for the past 10 days. I have to walk away from it again. I'm like once again too close to it. And, and there's a reason that I put that story down 20 years ago. And it may not be a story that I'm able to solve. I, I just, I don't know. Um, there's, there's something that's, that's not working in it and that I, and I get too close to it and I can't see that and I have to get away, you know, so I can, so I can maybe figure it out, but I may not be able to. Yeah. I I think that that rising dough aspect is key to, to all artistic endeavor. Yeah. Not only artistic endeavors. I mean, you know, relationships too sometimes you you know you just need to to get away so you can think about it clearly yeah yeah um all right last two questions uh what are two of your favorite restaurants in the city and what's one of your favorite pizza places Mm. wow uh well let let me start with the second question first uh favorite pizza and and i can say this i've only been there once is DeFara's in Brooklyn. Oh, I've heard it's great. It's really great. Old man DeFara, I hope he's okay. I, I haven't heard anything. Um, but, you know, he's he's not a spring chicken. And, and when we were there, it was pre-pandemic, obviously. And he was in his early 80s then. Uh, but that pizza knocked my What kind of pie did you get? Uh, just a, a slice of, of Sicilian. Um, it was it was incredible. I, I dream about that pizza. Um, the, the problem with that pizza is, you know, it's a whole it's a whole. Ex- I mean, it's the a whole experience. It's a whole day. You have to go out there. You order the pizza, then you have to to go away for forty minutes and come back to to pick it up because he makes each slice by hand. Um, Locally, um, my my daughter loves Two Boots. Um, I think Two Boots is okay. I, I don't love it the way she does. 
I'd say probably Joe's Pizza on Carmine is is the best. I've slice. never had a slice of Joe's Pizza. I pass it all the time. It's really good. Yeah. Um, and then as far as as far as restaurants go, um, we had a um, a great meal at this place, Don Angie, on uh, Greenwich Avenue. Okay. Um, that's probably my favorite meal of the last uh, couple of years. Um, I Not, you said it's Don Angie. Don Angie. Okay, Don Angie. I'll look it up. Yeah. Um, and um, but I would say that the best the best meal. So on my birthday, my wife takes me out, surprises me. Um, so we never know where wh- whoever's having the birthday never knows where they're going. They're just sort of, you know, guided there blindfolded. And and I take her out somewhere on her birthday. And um the best meal we ever had was at Mama Fuku Co. Oh, I bet. And like that, the private table and everything. Well, that so that was when it was at the counter, mm-hmm. um, and the chef is right there, and you're watching him make everything. And that meal sort of ruined me for restaurants for for probably three months afterwards. I mean, it was just wow. It's it blew everything out of the water uh, to to the point where I, I just was like. I can't go anywhere else. <laughs> just have to, just have to stay home and, yeah, and yeah. Or, or just go back to Baba Fuku. But yeah. maybe even if you went back, it's it well, we did. We went bump. back. We went back yeah. a, a, a couple of years ago, and it was it was really good, but it wasn't as good. And it was in a new yeah. location, and it was yeah. a little more corporate. And the thing that really turned me off was that they did really light pours of the wine and they sort of measured them. And I was just like, really? You're charging this much money and you can't just give me a liberal pour? So that was, you know. So did you go to the original location, which was just a hole in the wall? Yeah. 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 I remember, I think it opened in the early 2000s. I remember reading about that. Yeah. What's Uh, the, and then then of course I want to know your, your, your favorite. Well, I, so favorite pizza is Lombardi's, which is you're you're um, downtown, right? Yeah, in the West Village. Yeah, so Lombardi's I love, um, and there's a place I'm on the Upper West Side. There's a place just two blocks from me that opened about a year or two ago called Mama's Two, huh. which is fantastic pizza. Wow. You know, Upper West Side is kind of a food desert, yeah. uh, restaurant desert. Um, my favorite, my all-time favorite restaurant in the whole world. Uh, I get nervous saying it because you know, then not that millions of people are listening to this podcast, but, <laughs> but it's like you know, it's sort of this semi-secret thing. Yeah, uh, it's called Celeste. It's on I think 86th and Amsterdam. No sign out front, cash only, no reservations. Um, Italian, and it is just. Wow. Divine. It's, oh, it's man. my favorite restaurant in the whole world. Uh, you know what? I, when, when, once I get my second jab, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take you to lunch or dinner there. All right. That, um, it, yeah. it, it's a wonderful place. Um, and you know, I've gotten to know the owner over the years and 
it's just you know it's it's just simple um uh simple how do you say the word neapolitan 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 yeah neapolitan it's just simple neapolitan um prices are great for new york city yeah and the food is just spectacular the only thing is it's everybody in the neighborhood loves it yeah so it's always you, you know it's one of those restaurants where you just you know you can barely move because it's right. just packed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. I oh, love great. It. All right. Well, yeah. well I, I'd love to do that. Peter, this has been fantastic. Yeah. I hope this is the first of, uh, of many conversations. I'm too. sure there were a bunch of different directions we could have gone. Yeah. Um, so thank you for your time. And if you could just remind everybody again where they can find your work. Yeah, so uh, uh, they can just go to peteralson.com. It's P-E-T-E-R-A-L-S-O-N.com. And um, and then also all the books are, are available on on Amazon, although, you know, I, I always prefer that people buy it from from uh, from like uh, um, indie, indie books or, uh, or or one of the the non uh, Amazon sites. Yes, especially since Amazon just crushed the the union. I know. Um, oh, vote I, I, in Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you go to peteralson.com, you can you can find all the books, and then you can go to your local independent bookseller and buy those books. And in addition to Peter's book, um, you can buy Eden Olson's first book, and her second book is coming to bookstores soon. Yeah. Yeah. All right, sir. All right. Thank man. you very much. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. That was my conversation with Peter Olson. Again, you can find his work at peteralson.com. And you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.